We are in week five of a series on questions about prayer, and we're going to dive right in because a couple of weeks ago we left off with a video that we're going to come back to tonight and deal with. That's kind of what our task is tonight, is to take on one of the tougher questions about prayer. But let me show you where we've been. These are the questions that we've already taken on. Does prayer change God's mind? If God is sovereign, what good will it do to pray? Why pray if God already knows all of our needs? Does prayer change circumstances or does it only change us? So we've analyzed those questions starting off. We've also looked at these. Last week we capped off questions about the power of prayer. Here are the questions we had. If your prayer is not answered, is it because you lack the faith? We struggled with that one for almost two weeks. Is it more likely that your prayer will be answered if a greater number of people are praying? That was also something we capped off in session four and Are some people's prayers heard more than others? In other words, does the gift of intercession actually mean that their prayers will be heard more than others? We also took that on. If you want answers to any of those things, go back to uh, number three and number four, and you can pick up the answers. I want to tell you that this one here, I just want to make a quick note. Is it more likely that your prayer will be answered if a greater number of people are praying? I want to make one comment. You know, in that session we were dealing with it, what we were looking at is, does the scripture guarantee that if people agree, it will be done? That's actually what we were talking about. And somebody correctly pointed out, well, but don't you think that if a greater number of people are praying, that's part of that persistent, insistent prayer that we talked about before? And I think the answer is yes. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have more people pray. And as we point out, there may be other reasons that people should be joining together in prayer I just was analyzing a very narrow thing, which is it's not a guarantee that just because you get a bunch of people to pray that it will happen. And you'll see that's part of what we're going to tackle tonight. I want to review something really fast because this was such an important question. It took us two weeks to kind of get through it. I'm not going to go into depth. I just want to remind you of where we've been because a couple of weeks have passed since we kind of answered this question. The one we struggled with the most most was if your prayer is not answered, it's because you lack the faith. That statement and why this was not a correct statement. Our conclusion was something like this. After all the discussion that we had in this room, the kind of conclusion that I was trying to propose to you was the reason this is not an accurate statement is because it doesn't take into consideration the totality of Jesus' teachings. It doesn't take into consideration the full counsel of Scripture and all the other verses that kind of put some restrictions on this kind of notion. Remember, specifically, we were looking at Mark 11 and John 14 and how those promises in Scripture seem to be unlimited. And we pointed out these things. I'll just go through a couple of them for you. I'm just going to remind you what they are. The verses are on the screen. We covered them fully in the last session, so I'm not, I just want to bring them to mind. One, It's not just faith because there are other (laughs) factors in there. For example, your prayer may not be answered because it's against God's sovereign will. The second thing we threw up is your prayer may not be answered because it's against God's moral will. Third, we said that your prayer may not be answered because you're not abiding in Christ. Fourth, your prayer may not be answered because of sin. Fifth, your prayer may not be answered because of improper motives. Sixth, your prayer may not be answered because of issues of forgiveness. That's why the statement is an incomplete summary, because it seems like faith is one factor, and Scripture talks about many others. All right, That's a very, very one-minute summary of two weeks' worth of material, so go back and listen to it if you want. We also pointed out that this faith that we're talking about is faith in God's ability, his nature, his power, not necessarily faith in just saying that, oh, it will happen, so therefore that means I have faith. 
right? We talked about the difference between God's power versus certainty. Again, that's part of the discussion. Why am I bringing those things back to mind? Because this is where we left off last time we spoke. This series was born out of a lot of questions that we had about prayer. You remember that we have 75 questions that we took from you that you wrote down on cards about prayer. And we're seeking to answer as many of them as we can through this series. We left off here because one of the toughest questions that you've asked is, does prayer really work? Okay, I can see there's a lot of reasons that my prayer might not be answered. But I think what we all want to know is, would it ever be answered and would it change anything? So we left off by showing this video, and I promised that I would let you think about it. We'd come back and watch it one more time, and then we would try to take it apart. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to stop. I want to pass out some cards and some pens in case you want to jot something down. This video is only 10 minutes long. I want you to write down some notes, but here's specifically what I want you to look for. A number of you, when we kind of put this up last time at the end, said, oh yeah, I saw a lot of problems with that, or I could point out some issues with that. I'd like you to point them out. So let's just pause right there. Let me pass out some cards to you and some pens. You'll remember that I told you that this is becoming a very popular video that's being passed around the internet a lot, so that's why we're kind of taking it on. So take a few moments to watch and see if you can come up with some explanations or some responses. By watching this short video, you will be able to prove to yourself that the belief in prayer is a superstition. Every answered prayer is a coincidence, nothing more. Let's start by understanding how superstitions work. Imagine one day that your uncle gives you his lucky horseshoe. He says to you, This horseshoe has never failed me. Just tell the horseshoe what you want and it will bring it to you. This sounds good, but you're a little skeptical. So you decide to try it out. You take six dice in one hand and the lucky horseshoe in the other. You say, Lucky horseshoe, give me six sixes. And you roll the dice. So think about it. What do you suppose is going to happen? If you are a normal, intelligent person, you know what will happen. Chances are that you won't get six sixes, because the odds are only one in 46,000 that you will get six sixes. It is not going to happen very often. Does the lucky horseshoe have any effect on the dice? Does the horseshoe change the odds of getting six sixes? No, the horseshoe has absolutely no effect. Can we prove it? Yes, we can test it scientifically. We roll the dice thousands of times, invoking the lucky horseshoe each time. We find that the horseshoe has no effect whatsoever on the dice. Therefore, we call the belief in lucky horseshoes a superstition. A superstition is defined as an irrational belief that a magical object or action influences the outcome of events. By performing thousands of experiments, we prove that the belief in lucky horseshoes is a superstition. We can prove that the belief in prayer is a superstition in exactly the same way. Let's look at several examples. Example 1. Imagine that your aunt says to you, If you pray to God, he will answer your prayers. You ask her the obvious question, How do you know that? She says, I have prayed to God hundreds of times. He always answers my prayers just like he says in the Bible. Then she quotes you two Bible verses. In Mark 11 verse 24 Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, 
Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. In John 14, verse 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This seems pretty simple. Jesus is supposed to be God. God is supposed to be perfect. When God says something, it should be true. Prayer should work. So you decide to try it out. You pray to God in this way. Dear God, please help me to roll six sixes. I have faith that you will answer my prayer as you promise in the Bible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you roll the dice. What do you suppose is going to happen? If you are a normal, intelligent person, you know what will happen. Nothing. You will not roll six sixes any more often than normal when you pray. We can scientifically prove this. We can roll the dice thousands of times, praying to God each time. We find that prayer has no effect on the dice whatsoever. Any intelligent person can see what is happening here. The prayer has exactly the same effect as the horseshoe. That's because the belief in prayer is a superstition, just like the belief in lucky horseshoes. A superstitious person who believes in prayer cannot see that prayers and horseshoes are identical. Instead, a superstitious person clings to the superstition and creates excuses to explain why it does not work. Instead of making excuses, here is the important thing to understand. Prayer has exactly the same effect as a horseshoe. The perfect equivalence between prayer and horseshoes is undeniable. Example 2. What if we tried this prayer instead? Dear God, we pray to you to cure every case of cancer on this planet tonight. We pray in faith, knowing you will bless us as you promise in the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. This is an important prayer. Millions of people die of cancer every year. There is lung cancer, brain cancer, colon cancer, skin cancer, and all the rest. We pray sincerely, knowing that when God answers this completely heartfelt, unselfish, non-materialistic prayer, it will glorify God and help millions of people in remarkable ways. What do you suppose is going to happen? Will God reach down and eliminate all the cancerous cells? If you are a normal, intelligent person, you know what will happen. Nothing. This prayer will have no effect whatsoever. Here is the interesting thing. If you ask a lucky horseshoe to cure every case of cancer, the exact same thing happens. Prayer has exactly the same effect as a horseshoe. If you are a superstitious person who believes in the power of prayer, you are making excuses right now. You might be thinking, that prayer is too big, or it would be too obvious for God to answer this prayer, or God intends for us to suffer. Instead of making excuses, what if we accept the reality of the situation? The perfect equivalence between prayer and horseshoes is undeniable. Example 3 If the prayer in Example 2 was too big, let's try a smaller prayer. We find 1,000 deserving cancer patients. We split them into two groups of 500. We pray for the people in the first group, and we touch the people in the second group with a lucky horseshoe. What do you suppose will happen? 
Will God reach down and cure all the people in the first group? Of course not. Statistically, the two groups will be identical. Praying for people has no effect on disease. The reason is simple. Prayer has exactly the same effect as a horseshoe. The belief in prayer is a superstition. You might be thinking, now wait a minute, I know lots of people who have been cured by prayer. Here is what is actually happening. Let's say that there is a form of brain cancer that has a 10% survival rate. When people get this form of cancer, one person lives and nine people die. They all pray. The one who survives shouts, I prayed to God and he saved me. But you never hear from the nine who died because they are dead. So it sounds like prayer works when in fact prayer has no effect. The answered prayer is a coincidence, nothing more. Example 4. Let's find a deserving Christian who has had a leg amputated. Now let's assemble a million faithful believers in a prayer circle. In Matthew 18 verse 19 Jesus says, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Let's have one million faithful believers pray to God to spontaneously restore the amputated limb. What do you suppose will happen? Will the hand of God reach down and restore the limb? If you are a normal, intelligent person, you know what will happen. Nothing. This prayer will have no effect whatsoever. Do you see the pattern? We have looked at four examples. In each case, the effect of prayer is exactly the same as the effect of a lucky horseshoe. We could look at a hundred more examples and see the same thing. There are not special laws of probability for people who pray. The laws of probability are always the same whether you pray or not. There are not special laws of nature for people who pray. Otherwise, the laws of nature would behave differently when people pray and none of our scientific equations would work. The belief in prayer is pure superstition. Every answered prayer is a coincidence. We can prove it in hundreds of ways. What does this mean? Imagine that you are sick in the hospital. If your friend were to say, Dear Lucky Horseshoe, please work your healing power on this disease, we would think she is an idiot for being so superstitious. We all know that horseshoes have no effect on disease. It is the same if she prays to God to cure the disease. Prayer has exactly the same effect as a horseshoe. Imagine that you are a soldier and your platoon is going into battle. If your commander were to say, Dear Lucky Horseshoe, please protect these soldiers from harm, we would think that he is an idiot for being so superstitious. A horseshoe does not protect anyone. It is exactly the same to pray for protection. Prayer does not protect anyone either. And think about this. What if a minister says to you, God tells you to tithe money to the church. If you do, God will answer your prayers. This is fraud. The minister is lying to you in order to get your money. The belief in prayer is pure superstition. It is time for us to state the truth. Prayer is a superstition. It is time to point out that the superstition of prayer, like all superstitions, is silly. And it is time for us to end the fraud. So, why would we take this head on? You know that I've always said this group is not afraid to question. 
even if we don't have all the answers, because the world is questioning, and for us to be ignorant of that, well, that would be ignorance in itself. So this video, as I've said before, has gotten a lot of play. Uh, the new atheists like uh, Hitchens and, and Dawkins have referenced this in articles, and a lot of people stumble on this. It's got a tremendous amount of hits on YouTube as people probe this question. What I like to do is I'd like to hear from you as to things that you don't agree with about this video, um, and to be fair maybe, so that I can help the discussion a little bit, I actually did a lot of research on what Christians say in response to the video. So let me do this. I'm going to put up some, some responses. These are legitimate. Well, let me backtrack. These are actual responses uh, from Christians who have struggled with this video, and these are their responses. Let me point out a couple of them to you. Here's Christian responses. Number one, Jesus and all of his promises about the power of prayer was speaking only to the apostles. Since the time of the apostles, all miracles have ceased. That's the perspective. Okay? So that's one perspective. You can evaluate that. That's one response. Number two, prayer is for strength to deal with the situation, not to change it. Remember, we've dealt with that and tried to wrestle that idea to the ground. Prayer doesn't change anything. It just changes us. I don't know who started that. I think it actually goes back to uh, like Kierkegaard was maybe the first person to actually talk about these kinds of ideas about not changing God, but changing us. That idea still sits around. We kind of wrestled with it. Here's another one. We don't know that God has never healed an amputee. Just because we don't know of such an instance doesn't mean it never happened. So kind of attacking the assumption that's made in this video that, well, how do we know he hasn't done it? That would be too obvious of a show of God's power, and it would destroy our ability to have faith. That's the reason he wouldn't do it. Is because obviously that would obliterate all faith. We would see for sure that there must be a God, and that would obliterate our faith. So that's the reason that God doesn't heal amputees. Here's another one. Prosthetics are basically God's provision and love for us. That's an actual answer. That the answer to this question is, you guys are all misguided. God gave us prosthetics. Okay? And that's his love for us. It's hard to say that one with a straight face. <laughs> Here's another one. An amputation is a medical procedure, not something that requires healing. Others say, that is the healing. <coughs> you know, The healing is the amputation, because otherwise the patient would have died. And by amputating their leg, we've actually healed them. So they don't need healing. We've already, they've already been healed. Right. Tell that to somebody who's born without limbs. I mean, that's like, that doesn't, well, okay, I'm showing my bias already. Okay. I'll leave it there. Let's hear from you. How do you respond to this video? What did you notice about it? What do you point out about it? Peter? It takes a very limited scope of the passages as far as, you know, it's, it's kind of saying a straw man against prayer and saying that, you know, it says these things. There's no qualifiers to what's said in other parts of the scripture to balance those things out. Like all those things we just listed, you know, on the page before. So, I mean, there's definitely... You set it up as this all-encompassing ticket to anything you want, and sure, it's going to fail, but it was never really written that way in Scripture. Okay. And even the jump lines, even the references that they do cite are, are very poorly understood, and which we've already kind of covered. It's just because two people agree on something does not, that's a misunderstanding of that passage to begin with. So not only is it not very total, they don't use those Bible verses well at all. Okay, so you're attacking the Matthew 18 citation, right? And you're kind of talking about the Mark 11 and the John 14 citations, yeah, which we've been working with. And in fairness, let me just point out, so we link it to our prior discussion, 
to say that this particular person who authored the video is the only one who misuses them misses the fact that, like, I would say 75% of Christians misuse those verses and, and have little understanding of them. So, in one respect, we could say he got the understanding from us. Jeremy. It employs a lot of, you know, salesman techniques, appeal to intellect, you know, repetition. Um, it's really not even so much an appeal to ignorance. It's just that if you're a person who sees something like this and that's it, and that's, that convinces you, it, it reflects more poorly, not just on you, but on the person you put it together. But I think, academically speaking, the other issue is that it's, uh, it reduces theological concepts in a way that, well, one, you shouldn't do it, you really can't do it, and if we were to do the opposite, i.e. reduce some scientific concept down to some kind of, it's an, it's an oversimplification. I mean, yeah, anyone with intelligence sees a, a kind of oversimplification that's just skirting around with the problem of actually dealing with it, which is messier and harder and unanswerable to some degree. Okay, anyone else? Joe? I think kind of going along with the oversimplification is just the whole idea of, okay, you are praying for this because you want it, not to mean to count like a longitudinal view of, okay, this may not be the best thing, we only have this view, God has this view, and not just for us, for everyone else. So it's we're very limited in what we can and should ask for, and it could be detrimental to us or to others down the line. Okay. Mike? I mean, I don't think the argument he makes for small is even that great of an argument. Like, you could pick out a bunch of fallacies. You could go in and tear apart what he did. You can say that it's oversimplified. You can point all these things out. You can reinterpret, like, saying this is taken out of context. You can explain to people what these passages really mean. All those things are really good. I think it's really important that we're discussing prayer because it gives us more answers to give to people about prayer. But at the end of the day, maybe the real question is why does God allow suffering? Maybe that's the real question. Because at the end of the day, no matter what you do to this argument, people still pray for things that don't happen. And they're still, and it it just comes down to if you don't want to believe in God, you don't want to believe in God. Like you can make an argument for and against everything, and you can tell them it's misunderstood or whatever, but try to talk to someone whose mother is dying of cancer and you pray day in and day out and God didn't save that one person. It's like, if you have a deep faith, you can understand those things like, you know, God's sovereign will or maybe it was this or it was just this or that. At the end of the day, like, we know prayer is powerful and it works for us if we've experienced it and we are a Christian. But if you're not a Christian, it's really hard to deal with that. Well, I'm not going to take on suffering and evil because we are going to do that as a separate series that we've already announced in the fall. The other thing is, I, I will quibble with some of the things you said, but I want to hear from other people first, because I think that there are some troubling aspects of this video that do ring somewhat true to us. Anyone else want to jump in? Philip? The one thing that like, it wasn't like, discounting the whole um, aspect of it, it just sort of bothered me a little bit, because it's an assumption that most people don't even acknowledge, is the idea that you talked about like, the scientific method, of like, well, we can test this a thousand times, and... It has, well, scientific method is a method that we created as people to prove things scientifically. And scientifically is even a term that we created. Like, you don't scientifically prove that philosophies are true. I mean, or scientifically prove that love exists. Like, you can't do that. It doesn't make sense. And so, it, not that that just counts everything he said, but at least that idea of you know, applying the scientific method to determining whether prayer is a superstition, like, isn't necessarily a valid way to do it. I don't think that, like I said, I don't think that just counts all the rest of what he said, but it just isn't necessarily the best way to go about it. 
Yeah, I had two things. One goes to what this gentleman said, that the uh, just the, the rhetorical technique they use is quite interesting, where they just say, uh, normal intelligent person wouldn't believe this. Prayer and lucky horseshoes are both superstitions. Why are they superstitions? They're superstitions because the belief in one is like the belief in the other. What makes them like each other? Because they're both superstitions. So on the one level, they're just asserting things over and over again without actually giving an argument, making it look like an argument when it isn't. But more to the point, I would disagree on the scientific method. The fact is that prayer does make a difference, and there are statistical studies that show exactly that. It is, in fact, one of the best predictors of someone getting better is whether people are praying for them and whether they believe people are praying for them. And there's been a number of studies. There's a couple of profs at Fuller that do this kind of study where they actually go in and just count how many people pray, who gets well, who doesn't. There's a point in the video where you might have noticed they had a bunch of people on the screen. They say, what if we separated them into two groups? You saw that? And we touched them with the horseshoe and the other one we prayed for. And then he says, any rational person would know that the outcome would be exactly the same. The studies that you reference are controversial because there have been a number of studies done, some that have shown that prayer does make an impact, some have shown that it didn't make an impact, some people have tried to run double-blind studies where the patients didn't know they were being prayed for, some of them have tried to run ones where they were told that they were being prayed for, and they've run them every which way. Most Christian scholars will assert that there have been studies that show that prayer works, and actually I found a number of non-Christian sources that agreed with that. There is a journal that has been documenting some of this research and a couple of regular public universities that have looked into the science and just the intersection between spirituality, faith, and health. And a number of books written, I could point you to one, written by somebody who I don't believe is a Christian at all, who's documented all the different things that faith does do for the body health-wise. The place where it gets slippery, though, is even some Christian medical practitioners will acknowledge that those studies are controverted in different places. So for him to make, in the video, just a blanket statement, and all of a sudden the rest of the video follows that line, I think we took a left turn there and, and wasn't really a justified one. Jeremy? Yeah, to go along with that, too, uh, the more specific question would be, is, is prayer having a positive psychological effect, or is the prayer directly responsible for the healing? Those are two separate things, and I don't know that either one's going to be measurable. And that's... I think maybe that's even part of the problem in, in, in discovering how you even apply some type of scientific rigor to, to determining whether, but not that it's not possible, but I think that would be part of the confusion. Yeah, and I'll stop you there. What you're referring to is does prayer have some sort of psychosomatic effect on the body, right? Like, so if you had faith, are you less stressed, so therefore your body heals faster? And I think that's a very fair comment. We will address it, but I just want to point that out when we get to that point and talk about it that that is what some people believe, but you're right. I don't think that's the same thing as a miraculous healing. So, anyone else? There's one other thing I want to point out with this second example, the, the idea that they have no theological basis for the doctrine of sin, for like major doctrines of the faith that do answer why a prayer to say, I, you know, God heal all cancer everywhere. Why something like that seems doomed to fail? Because we acknowledge that all of creation, including things like uh, you know, the way, you know, natural disasters, biological disasters, and then the way we relate to each other has been destroyed in a very 
significant way by sin. Yeah, and the excuses that they say that a superstitious person would make, they seem, he takes them on in a flippant way. Like, if you're a superstitious person, you'll say, that prayer is too obvious. Or you'll say, God wants us to suffer. You know, there may be some theological reason, some truth reason. We still have to wrestle with it, but I think to check them off and say, if you said that, you must be superstitious, is again another leap and probably just an ad hominem. Let's go back to something that you guys have already thrown out. Let's take an example of cancer. Do you think God can heal somebody of cancer? How many people think God can heal somebody of cancer? Raise your hand. All right, that's most of the room. How many people think God could heal an amputee? So the fact that you've never seen it happen or it's never been reported doesn't bother you in any way. Why have we never heard of it? Let's go to the central question, as screwed up as the video might be in their presentation. Let's go to that question for a moment. Why has that never happened in our hearing? How many people have heard of somebody being cured of cancer? I mean, it seems to me like every church service, there's somebody saying it somewhere more than once. We hear about people having been cured of diabetes, but... Why have we not heard anybody being cured of an amputated leg? Does that create a problem for us? Does it create a problem for you? Yeah. That goes back to like before and I was saying, I think the reason why he hasn't, like you have to take all of Christianity as a whole. Like we have a broader understanding, you know, that could be his lot in life or there's a reason behind it or the way God works in his sovereign will and the moral will and this will. I mean, it's connected to so many different things. We could step outside and be like, I understand like good could come of this or there's a reason for it. But again, if you're not a Christian, you don't have that scope. All you see is that the healing didn't take place. But it would be a little bit odd, you'd have to admit, that God would heal people of cancer but not of amputation. Like all those things that you put in, like his will and all those things. So you're saying that it would it doesn't sound like it's God's moral will, sovereign will, desire to heal amputated people. I honestly don't believe that like throughout the world it never happened. Like I kinda am optimistic in that way or I think maybe it probably has, but <laughs> Okay, go ahead, Wendy. I just have a problem with I guess the definition of healing mm. and what exactly like if you're talking about a person with cancer versus like the leg regrowing or arm or whatever the case, and who are you to judge what the healing is? Okay, let me, let me define it the way I'm going to. It's, it's, a, it's an artificial definition. I'm going to define miraculous healing as something that there is no way could be within the bounds of any of the natural laws that we know about or even ones we don't. And I am doing it for a reason. I'm holding it there for a reason because I want to know if we believe in that God or we just believe that God just sends us good doctors with good medicine. Like, what do we believe? Dan? Well, those are two different types of healing. If I don't have a leg, I can live the rest of my life without my leg. But if I have brain cancer, that's eventually going to kill me. Or any type of cancer, if it sits in your body, eventually you will die of that. But not having a leg or an arm, like, yeah, it's an inconvenience, but you just won't have as good quality of life or whatever. It's, it's, I feel like it's two different things because you're going to die from cancer and not having a limb is not a life-threatening situation. Do you attribute that view to God? Like he's looking down going, well, you don't really need healing because you could probably hop around, but you... Like, you're the mother of three kids, and I really need you to be healed because brain cancer could kill you. All the stuff you hear about healing, it's not like somebody has an inconvenience in their life. They get healed of something that's going to kill them. Okay. Although I could, I've heard people being cured of diabetes, which they could probably manage for most of their life. Joseph? Yeah, that was going to be my response to that. For example, someone in my class <laughs> had, um, I forgot some disease in their leg that makes them unable to go running for like after 10 minutes of running they can't run and 
then they get healed, well, you know, they could go on living with that, it would just be an inconvenience, but then they get healed. In another case where another one of my classmates had a tumor in her brain, and then after a day or two of prayer, they went back to the doctor and they, they scanned her brain and it was completely gone. Now, what I want to think about is something that's a little bit difficult to think about. The amputees and uh, brain cancer, diabetes, they're obviously not equal in their scope. And maybe, this is not really what I think, but I'm just throwing this out that, you know, maybe God does, in some areas of influence and His power, He will not use it, or he, he, there's some sort of spiritual battle where I don't know where He's not going to do it in, like, amputees. Okay. Seems like He's creating a weird classification of people if we follow that logic, like He's saying... You, I'm not going to heal this type of people, Philip. I don't have a really an answer for the question, but I mean, the big problem, or a problem with the question, is that there's an assumption that we know what God wants, mm-hmm. uh, and to that degree, I like, or I'd ask a different question, like, well, what if I pray, God, I just don't ever want to die ever, <laughs> like I want to live forever. I mean, like, there's part of me, and like most people, I think, would agree, like, well, that's ridiculous. Like, why would God do that? Like, we sort of know, like, that's something God wouldn't do. I believe he does have the power to do that. He could do that. If he wanted me to live forever, like, he could. But even, like, uh, like the point God brought up earlier, where cancer would, would kill you, but, like, there's an assumed, like, well, I'm going to die this time. Like, cancer will cut it short. I, I don't know, like, this idea that we assume God wants everybody to live to 75, 80, 85, and then after that, like, you're okay. But, like, we don't know what God wants. Because obviously he doesn't want all cancer to be healed right now. Well, the good news of the gospel, Philip, is that God does want you to live forever, and you will be with him forever in heaven. And if you want to come up afterwards and pray with us in the corner, we'll make sure that you get a new believer's Bible, and you can live forever. I can only do that to you because you can take it. Here's, let me take something you said, though, very carefully. You guys, we don't want to lose track of this argument too much. Yes, you're right. We can't presume to know the mind of God and what he wants. What I'm trying to do, though, is compare sort of apples and apples. If you believe he does heal certain things miraculously, why not this one? I'm not saying that we know why he would or wouldn't heal somebody or what he does or doesn't want somebody to do. I'm just saying some of you believe that he does cure people of cancer miraculously. Some people believe that he cures other diseases miraculously. And barring the one example that we don't know that some remote person we've never heard of has regrown a leg or something, why won't he heal this group of people miraculously? Yeah. Maybe I can try and refine the question you're asking. It's almost like saying, if you believe that God can heal this group of cancer people, then you also could believe that God could heal this group of amputees. You can believe that, but asking the why part or the why are they different, or like that's a different question. That's not part of the, the statement, I believe God can do this, and I believe God can do this. And I am asking that question because I think it's instructive to us. I don't know that we're going to know the answer, but asking the question has a very good probative value because a lot of us, use the word miracle almost too easily in my mind. 
I've heard people who've said, like, I needed a certain amount of money, and it showed up in my mailbox. It was a miracle. You know, I've been driving down the street, and I needed green lights, and it was a miracle. I needed a parking spot, and it was a miracle. Like, we use it so much that we've lost the definition of something that is going to defy all of the natural laws that God himself created. Like, he's intervening in the natural order. So the reason I'm asking the question is because I think it is probative Maybe because we can't answer the question, it will at least remind us that maybe our use of miracle and our place that we attribute it to so often, maybe we need to pull back a little bit is the reason I'm pressing that question. Because I'm trying to say, if we're so eager to attribute it in one area, maybe the reason we can't attribute it in this area is that we've over-attributed it somewhere else. And that's what I'm trying to ask. Other comments are over here? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to mention that you know maybe there's a, there's a distinct difference between a healing of cancer and an amputee because one is actually a creation. I'm not asking, and if I don't have a leg, I'm not asking God to heal my non-leg. I'm asking Him to create a new leg. Okay, I will point out though that when Jesus healed people of leprosy, it does seem that He made them whole, and the disease of leprosy does eat away at your body. And for them to have presented themselves at the temple as ceremonially clean, they must have shown that they somehow regrown some tissue or something. But it does seem to be that the miracles of the Bible go beyond those kinds of things, like a person who's dead for four days and then rises again. So I, I see that, I see what you're saying, it's just that I think that if we're going to really look at the miracles and believe in them, and that's, some people don't, but if you're going to believe in them in that way, I think that creates a problem for us. Yeah. I would say, do people naturally, is it the natural law that people stay dead? Not always. I, I know of a few exceptions and one in particular. So that isn't a law of nature. It's a law of nature that most people stay dead. Right. And I took a very strong definition of miracles only because I'm trying to err on the side of moving us from that place where we oversubscribe to them. I agree with you on that point. But in this film that we saw, they were using a very positivistic view of science as if it's prescriptive and you can't violate that, which is just not the case. Right. And the other thing you said is that, you know, when somebody dies, and we've seen those examples, I will tell you that a number of people, both Christian medical practitioners and secular medical practitioners, have published articles on spontaneous remission. All right. In the case of cancer, it's been documented over and over that sometimes in a certain percentage of cancer, it will spontaneously disappear. Now, here's the question. Of course, Christians rush in and say, that must be evidence of a miracle. But what if cancer just spontaneously disappears sometimes? And here's another thing that was pointed out by Christian scholars. that The reason we can't attribute that to prayer by itself is because this spontaneous remission is found in people who prayed and people who have no faith or different faith. So our views of just how the body works and how the laws of nature work have to be expansive. Why am I pointing that out? Because what if we pray for somebody who has a spontaneous remission? Somebody in the next bed over is being prayed over by a Buddhist monk and they have a spontaneous remission. What do we say then? Are you prepared to say they're both equally valid? Well, most of our churches, that's exactly what they're announcing on Sunday morning as to the one and just completely ignoring the other. It creates a problem, and our definitions of what truly is happening is wrong. Some of you, like, like Ryan pointed out, go, you know what, I just want to talk about prayer. This doesn't interest me that much. It's like, right, except that all of these ideas are out there to debunk the power of the God that we profess. 
I think it deserves at least some mention to find out how do you believe. And if we're contributing to the issue by oversubscribing things to miracles all the time, we ourselves are putting ourselves in a place where somebody is going to debunk that because we didn't think through the argument all the way to the end. Yeah, Jill. I think the heart of it is this belief that we deserve to be whole and happy and live these long lives. That might be something nice that we want for ourselves, but that may not be from God's purposes. And I think that that's kind of important to keep in mind. Um, I think that's something we struggle with more as Americans and maybe people in other countries who've had parents taken and legs bombed off. And like, I don't expect to maybe live longer than some people. And I think if we did get cancer and die, like, should we want to go to heaven? Should we want to maybe not hang around here? You know what? I'm going to use that comment to transition to this because here's some assumptions that come out in the video. I just want to point out a couple of them to you. You guys have hit most of them. I'm just going to point out four quick assumptions I think the video makes. One of them is exactly what Jill was talking about, that God's love, goodness, and mercy requires him to heal everybody. Like, that seems to be assumed in the video, like, God is truth, and you'll pray to him, and, he, and that, that has to happen. Here's another assumption. God is bound by or subservient to our prayer, something that Philip keeps pointing out, that somehow, like, if I just pray, I'm going to live forever, and I have faith, like, that's going to happen, that God's got to do it. We've already debunked the whole God is subservient to us idea over the last two weeks. What about this one? God's promises are limited to this life. That somehow like the promise of eternal life and the promise of a life without suffering and the promise of that life is not good enough or that we don't value it or that God's promises must be fulfilled now as opposed to all the things that are yet to come when our bodies are made whole the way they're supposed to be. This video also kind of assumes that miracles occur with the same frequency, which is something that we've talked about in the past. And that's why some people say they cease, they're less frequent. No matter what you believe about miracles, and I think we've talked in the past that probably the idea that miracles have ceased is a misreading of 1 Corinthians, but whatever you believe, I certainly think they occur much less frequently than we think they do, than we attribute things to them. And I I can't emphasize that point enough. Like The more we use that language and over-attribute things, the more that we're setting up other people to a disappointing failure. God may act much more through his providence than through intervention in the natural order. We've talked about things in here already, like the way he's, like you said, the advancements in medical technology and prosthetics. We've talked about the advancements just in medicine in general. We've talked about even the fact that we don't yet even understand our body. When I said earlier, when I was talking to Jeremy about about psychosomatic illnesses, A number of Christian doctors have written and said, it doesn't bother me that the mind, once it's triggered a certain way, may assist healing. If God created our mind to be so powerful that it can actually affect our bodies and it can assist in the healing process, that's part of God's glory that he could design a body that could do that. That's okay. So that doesn't trip anybody up to say, hey, we, f- we did some studies and we found out that if you have faith, you'll actually live longer. If you have faith, you'll be less stressed. Or if you have faith, you'll have less incidence of cardiovascular disease. And some of these doctors say, hey, you might not call that miraculous, but I'll tell you what, it's still part of God's awesome design of our bodies that that could be true, that some people could be healed that way. Also, even if you accept the idea that there is spontaneous remission of some diseases that are built into the disease, doesn't answer everything, but I think it doesn't, you know, it doesn't leave us hanging. This is a theme we've come back to over and over. God chooses to partner with us. 
There are a lot of things that God may choose not to do where we should act in his name and for his purposes. There are areas where we're expecting God to act when it's really, remember, there's a partnership in so many of the things that we're supposed to do in his name. The best way to describe this is the constant metaphor, we are the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet. We talked about this idea at the retreat as well, but we are the people who are tangibly doing a lot of the things. How does that translate to prayer? A lot of times we're praying for things and certainly working with things that we ourselves can work together to help one another with. Okay. Last one that I put up here is, we may not understand the nature of qu- and the quality of life lived in the midst of a fallen existence. And that's something that we got to keep in mind. I think Jill was kind of highlighting that, that we are going to end this life, that it's not going to last forever. Philip was saying, I can't just pray to last forever and live forever. There may just be some things that relate to a fallen existence. What are some of those things? If you go back to the early Genesis story, you know that sin brought into the world death and suffering and illness and hard work and labor. Those are things that were ushered in because of the fall. Some of us labor under an idea that we could just pray all of those things out of existence. Now, I know the guy in the video would love it when he hears that statement. He's just going to say, I know the reason we can't just eradicate cancer is because God wants us to suffer. That's not the point. We brought that suffering upon ourselves through the introduction of sin into the creation. And it's the eradication of sin and bringing us back to a state of wholeness with God and reconciliation that takes away the suffering and the pain and the death. So in a way, I think we're dealing with an impossibility to be able to say, yes, in a fallen world, we can take it all away. The whole definition of the world being fallen is the introduction of that suffering and sin into our midst. Jeremy. I think the only comment that I would make to that is not a starting place for talking about the video. I mean, somebody who listens to that video and agrees with it, for example, you, I, I don't think that the first volley you shoot off is, well, it's because the world is fallen and there's sin and suffering in the world. I mean, because it's not part of the language that that person's dealing with. They're, they, they, don't, they, might, they might not even understand the words. We understand that, you know, and address it there. And then you invite them in. And then there's some more perspective. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to mention in response to Jeremy that, you know, we, we can kind of take ownership and bring them into our own theological debates because we're using our Bible verses as a substantive premise for what kind of prayer we're talking about. So, okay, if you want to begin talking about prayer, well, let's talk about it in its context, let's talk about it within its theological, theological structure. And I, I think, you know, rhetorically, it may not be the worst move to make either. But at the same time, the, the error is first in letting them get away with it. So you point that out. You point out the error. Just in the same way that many Christians make the error of assuming such and such about, some, about science or something. In the same way. That's, but whether or not you actually draw them into some deep theological... I mean, I don't need to deal with most Christians because they don't understand that. Part of it, too, is, is to reclaim those statements and bring them back into context. You know what I mean? I think that's a big part of the misunderstanding. Is okay, let, let's reclaim this statement, which is so... You know, it's been deteriorated or, you know, people have misunderstood it for so long and Christians have used it for so long in wrong ways that let's reclaim it, put it back into context, and then let's start the discussion over it. Okay, let me close it up like this. We've spent three weeks dealing with the power of prayer, and the good news for some people is we're moving on to other questions. But there is a reason that we stuck on this point as long as we did. 
we are the ones with the gospel. We are the ones that have the responsibility to take it to other people. You're right that they are kind of coming into our turf by citing scripture so that we should engage them on that level. But let's be real. The reason they even have access to those things is because they've probably listened to a number of people oversimplify scripture. And those people are our own people. You go to churches on Sunday morning and they oversimplify it to a point where they're just trying to sell it to you. It's not unfair if you're somebody who's questioning Christianity to take what they sold you and question it. That's what this video really tries to do. This video is saying, okay, let me hear you straight. You're saying whatever I ask will be done, do this thing. I don't need to go any further if I'm a skeptic. I'm just taking your words, what I heard you say, because you wanted me to come and believe in what you are telling me, so do this thing. Sure, we could engage all the different arguments we had tonight, but in the end, we're the ones that advance the position to begin with. And what I'm trying to point out with this video, if you don't hear anything else tonight, is I don't think we're advancing the position in a good way. We are oversimplifying just like they're oversimplifying. But they have a right to oversimplify because we did. They have a right to make it that silly because we have. And so what I'm trying to do, if nothing else, with this video is get you to think, let's not oversubscribe to doctrines that don't really have the right basis especially since we spent two weeks trying to look at them in context with the basis so that we could become better ambassadors for Christ when we speak to people, at least not put it out there in such a way that they could take it and go, hey, that's great. Let me just make sure I heard you. I got it. That's what you believe. Great. Now answer this. And all of a sudden you realize like, wait, maybe I should have said more or I should have explained it better. The whole exercise is just for us to remember that we have a responsibility, I think, when we are putting the message out there to put it out there correctly and not oversimplify it in a way that becomes a bumper sticker slogan because it's very easy to play games like this video with bumper sticker slogans. Let's leave it there. The next big question we had was, if prayer is supposed to be a dialogue, how come I don't hear anything back? And once we cross that big question, we have a bunch of smaller ones that we can finish up in the rest of your questions. They all kind of fall into place, <laughs> sort of. Once we get over that one, because maybe you're not bothered at all why God does or doesn't do certain things, but you are still in that place where you go, I thought it's supposed to be a dialogue. I'm ready to talk. Nobody is talking back. We're coming back next week to address that question and hear your heart on that one as well. Let's pray and close up. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your presence in this room. Thank you for the promptings of your Holy Spirit as we wrestle together. Lord, I'm confident that there are so many things that we don't have the answers to. Lord, I pray for faith in the midst of all of that. Thank you that the people in this room continue to move forward. Now take what we've learned in his place tonight, Lord, and cement it into our hearts, our minds. Change the way that we interact with others. And Lord, most importantly, turn all of these words into actions that we put into our lives into the lives of others. Help us to love one another and love people outside of this room. Let that be our highest prayer tonight. Pray this in your name. Amen.